Hello, hello. Welcome back, Leading Women in Tech. How are you doing? I hope your August is being amazing. At the point that this episode is going out, I'm just back from holiday. I'm recording this while ahead of my holiday, but I'm just back from holiday. And so I'm hoping that I'm all buzzing. And I hope you've all had some amazing summer holidays out there too. So today I am bringing you Sally Ann Delacasa. This lady's interview with me just blew my mind. It's one of those episodes I'm like, why do we only do 30 minute episodes? (laughs) Maybe I should become one of those um, podcasters who does two hour episodes because I really wanted to pick her brains for a long time. She is a founder, CEO and self-defined chief identity hacker at Gleek. She described herself in today's interview as a sunicorn, um, soon to be unicorn. I love that. Really, really love that. She created Lovely Humans, which is the first utility NFT marketplace that tokenizes industry experts' time and wisdom. She has attracted top global experts in various fields, including innovation, banking, and people like me, by the way, (laughs) leadership coaches. And she brings the wisdom of people like that together in her mixed reality living museum of wisdom. And this is what she's done in order to break through and become the first marketplace in the world that actually allows us to use AI and human ingenuity and wisdom as a service. She was the only female in a C-suite position in 2016 at Kareem, which was, I believe, one of the first unicorns in the Middle East. I could get that wrong. (laughs) So if I'm wrong, apologies. And her company right now, Gleek, is really about solving problems for industry by putting the right experts in front of the right people at the right time. This woman has an inspiring story to tell you. In particular, her background is not what you'd expect for somebody with a traditional CEO tech startup background. And I want you to hear this from the perspective of if you want to become a startup founder at some point, you can do it irrespective of your skill set right now. And her story really epitomizes that. And what you can be doing now to position yourself for that. So without further ado, let's get this week's guest and sponsor onto the show, Sally Ann Delacasa. Welcome to the Leading Women in Tech podcast, the show that celebrates women in technology leadership. I'm your host, Tony Collis, and this podcast is the result of my passion for building better tech by diversifying the leadership of the technology sector. Join me on this journey as I discuss all things leadership, what it takes to be innovative, breaking through the glass ceiling, be a great leader, and how to navigate the unique experiences we face as women in tech. So sit back, grab your headphones, and get ready to be inspired to become a better leader. Welcome to the show, Sally Ann. It's good to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, Tony. It's a pleasure. Likewise. Well, let's start with where I always like to start with every guest. Can you tell us a little bit about your career journey, the highlights and the lowlights, because they quite often tell us some interesting things about ourselves and why you're now so passionate about using tech to create an expert as a service platform? So, you know, I guess for your audience, where I will start is by saying definitely my journey is a zag. You know how a zig, it kind of goes as a particular trajectory. Mine was not that at all. Uh, I would have never in a million years, if you asked me five years ago, even, would I end up running a tech company and putting out patents and building algorithms? I would have laughed at you and said, who, me? Never. Uh, But I think if I look back, you know, if I can connect the dots for your audience and, and certainly connecting the dots for myself, I've always been passionate about people. 
And people, when it comes to inclusion and the way that we signal our uh, wisdom and ingenuity, and I'm not talking about our degrees and I'm not talking about our experience here. I'm talking about the things like our creative thinking, judgment and decision making, leadership, you know, we call it soft human skills. Um, but, you know, those are the things that get us to the top of the ladder. And if I look back through my life and through the journey of my life from the age of 13, volunteering, from being in college um, and starting to design mentorship programs, from being a corporate attorney through my 20s, um, and again, teaching and mentoring to creating my foundation, you know, 10 years back that does the same type of work of preparing uh, youth in jails and public schools to be job ready, but purely focusing on the human skills. And then to, you know, being the head of people to the first unicorn in the Middle East region, Kareem, um, which I did five years ago to today. It is always about people. It's always about signaling and including everyone at the table. And that's what really Gleek does today. It just does it with technology. So it means I can scale and I get to break all kinds of things. And um, it it does it in a way that I've always believed in is that you cannot do it alone. You need to do it with networks because networks unlock opportunity. And that's the reason why Gleek is a platform of 500 plus of the world's leading experts from the most important companies in the world with the most important networks in the world to be able to allow you to learn, innovate, and problem solve and be in those networks so you have access to opportunity. So, you know, that's the journey, uh, uh, Tony. Never would have guessed the way it came out, but there is always this common thread in all of it. I love this because one of the things I learn from all the women I speak to is that there is no one set way to become a woman in tech. And I think you've really highlighted that with your legal background um, your people ops background. Is it people ops or HR? Like what was it more than anything? It's not functional HR. I had, uh, I had my entire HR team. It was really looking at people, culture, and performance, which is a whole different area of companies and organizations. And, you know, I was the most unlikely person to get chosen for the job. I don't have a background in that area. And these two founders, two McKinsey, you know, guys, one from Stanford, they used to apparently follow my newsletters and they reached out to me when they raised 60 million and they were like, can you come and help us build people? And I was like, I'm not qualified for the job. And they're like, but we know you know people. And, um, and that, you know, that yes, for, you know, I want to say for me as a woman, not having the background, but being confident in my ability to learn got me close to tech. You know, they were scaling and building, you know, they were the Uber, they were acquired by Uber for 3.1 billion. And it gave me the confidence being in the proximity of tech to go, wait a minute, I can do that too. Um, So, you know, there, there, there was a reason behind it. Yeah. That's, that's really fascinating because it gives, it gives you that confidence. Well, let's talk about your founder's journey because that's one of the reasons I really wanted to speak to you. We don't have many female founders on this show. And I think a lot of my, I know a lot of the women I work with want to be founders at some point. I mean, I get the privilege of working with some extraordinary talent. I mean, the women I work with blow my socks off every day. I'm so incredibly privileged to work with them. And so many of them are hungry to be an entrepreneur. So tell us a little bit about your founder's journey, how you got started. And what what would you do if you did it again? What would you do differently? Mm. 
So I'm going to say, um, I'm going to say the thing that most founders do not share in a startup. And it doesn't matter whether you're doing well or you're not doing well. Every single day as a founder, you wake up with one foot in fear and one in courage going, holy crap, what did I get myself into? So I want to, you know, first say to everyone, that is, you know, and it does not get better. I'm just going to also say that, right? It does not get better, particularly, I think, for those of us founders who are very, who we are and how we show up in the world is aligned to what we do and what we're building, right? So I, I want to also say that. Remember, there, this is the body of work I've been working on um, yeah. since I was a child. So I think there is such attachment to it. But the founder's journey, you know, let me get really practical about it. You know, I come from, um, you know, I practiced corporate law for, you know, my first 10 years, to, you know, 21 to 31. You know, I came from a the only female in a C-suite level job. So in a very non-risk environment, doing extremely mm-hmm. well, I did not know what my risk tolerance once was. So I would say mm-hmm. the first, you know, the first thing you need to figure out, and sometimes you figure it out on the way. I had to figure it out on the way. You know, I'm, I am going in year five in this journey. Your risk tolerance, being a sole founder, needs to be extremely high because the pressure and the inability to see what the next step is and what the next move is and where you have to go next, you have to be comfortable in that. So if it's one thing I've learned about myself that I didn't know, like I completely, I was like, I was like, darn girl, <laughs> you know, you, you're doing it, right? Is, um, is that founder's journey of knowing my ability to operate in risk, in not knowing what the next steps are. So this would be, you know, the first thing. The second thing I would say for female founders is, you know, I did not bring a co-founder on. If I would go back, I would have. So I would have brought in a CTO because I do not come with a tech background. So, Tony, Mm. I have bumped my nose and made every single mistake there could be made in tech. Now, the only plus side of it is that there is no tech person today or AI person who can pull wool under my eyes. I know everything, (laughs) everything that they're like, you don't come with a tech background. How do you know that stuff? It's because I screwed up so much Mm. that I unpacked every imaginable (laughs) thing. So, you know, but as I said to you, I would have gone faster if I had brought in a tech founder, not being from a tech background myself. Um, uh, mm-hmm. that w- that's one of the things I would shift. I think the third thing I would say to female um, founders is a lot of times, you know, you don't have to take the whole leap of faith in one shot. It's not zero sum of going, I'm going to quit my job my solid job mm-hmm. and I have a family to take her up and tomorrow I'm going to be a founder of my startup. You know, sometimes it can really start as your side hustle, right? And yeah. your side hustle, you know, just think of it like you're a Google employee and 20% of your time is working on this side hustle and you really work to get product market fit. Um, you know, there, there are two things that matter in a startup. Timing, product market fit. If you get those two right, then the rest is really easy, right? And timing comes yeah. first. I'm going to say that. Timing comes first because you can have the best idea and the best product and if the market is not ready for it, it doesn't matter how much you have, you know, you advertise, you market, you sell. The market is just not ready for some things, right? You mm-hmm. know, market was not ready for AI that's been around for a while up until recently, right? Until ChatGPT. So, so you know, I would say my advice to 
female founders is you don't need to do it alone. Mm-hmm. Um, don't be afraid to ask for help. Uh, know your risk tolerance. And I think that would be like my three kind of core areas I, I would focus on starting out. I love that. I love that so much is is know your risk tolerance in particular. I, I think we can all stretch our risk tolerance up to a point. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that I had to do. I mean, obviously, I didn't have a tech startup, but I started my own company. And I was one of those ones who just like chucked it all in. <laughs> I got I got fed up and I was like, okay, I need to do this. And my husband was like, well, you've been talking about this business for a while. Why don't you do it? And I was like, oh my gosh. And I gave myself three months. He gave me, he gave me six months. I gave myself three months to like make something happen. And it is terrifying. And here you are. Exactly right. It's, it's utterly terrifying. But at the same time, understanding that risk tolerance, I think was so profound. So I'm really glad you called that out Mm. because I think without that, it's really hard for us to do this. Well, okay. So one thing I am aware of is that you have a patent or do you have more than one patent? And I, I I think that is seriously awesome for somebody without a tech background. Tell us a little bit about how does it feel? And I I don't really want to know how it feels (laughs) to have a patent without that technical background. So, you know, I, I am, I'm, I'm, I will share a story about what success feels like, and then I will share about the patent, right? Um, so success for me is a feeling, right? I think success for many of us are different things, right? And it's perfectly okay. Mm-hmm. Some of us, it's our titles that we finally got there. Some of us, it might be, you know, physical things, assets that we've always wanted. So for me, it's always been tied to a feeling. And, uh, you know, my first feeling of success is when I published my book in 2016. And I remember walking into like a big bookstore and seeing my book there. And I'm very nerdy. You know, I was that kid with like five books at a time, even today. And I remember picking it up, going and saying, this is what success feels like. Right. And I fast forward today, you know, that's 2016. And, you know, just to give you an idea, yesterday I, you know, was on a panel for AI in the um, in the uh, UAE region, you know, speaking to all the women about to go into boards of publicly traded companies. And I'm their expert talking about AI and talking about the fact that I am, you know, one of four percent of women with a patent. And I really have to, like, pinch myself going, how did that happen? Right. Um, and. I will say to you this, and I will say to all your women listeners out there, filing a patent and the reason the numbers are so small for women as sole inventors, it's about maybe about 15, 16% for um, uh, women who file with men, and it's about 4% or less for women who file alone. Um, It's shocking because as women, we invent stuff all the time, (laughs) all the time. Mm. You know, our creativity is off the charts and our ability to see things people do not see and put them together and go, oh, why haven't you not tried this? And I think a lot of times it's our lack of education in knowing, oh, that is actually a patent. Because I come from a legal background, I recognized what I was putting together in creating Gleek did not exist yet. And I just remember going to the patent attorney and I did not know how to put together an algorithm. And an algorithm is really just like matching. You know, I always say it's like a teacher marking a test, right? If this happens, you give it a score of one. If that happens, you give it a score of two. If that happens, you minus one, right? It's when you, when you break it down for an eight year old, it's not rocket science, right? It's not. (laughs) And I just remember like working with the data scientist going, here's what I wanted to do and explaining to him what I wanted it to do. And then taking it to the lawyer and going, here's what it's doing. And he goes, you have something. And it's so interesting that. I filed it originally. You can do something called a pending patent um, in 2017 or 2018. I can't remember. 
And recently, we updated it to a family of patents this year. And when you do a family of patents, you get to see who are the other companies who are also filing in the same area. And Tony, like the only other companies filing in my area is like the IBMs and the Microsofts of the world. Wow. I remember my patent attorney coming to me. She's like, you're really onto something and you're first in line. And it's just one of those things that blows my mind to myself. (laughs) But but it was my legal background, right? Um, I will say to you, Mm -hmm. this made me the awareness. Oh, there's this thing called patents and and. Maybe there might be something there. What it did take, it was the courage and belief in myself that I was Mm. creating something to pick up the phone and call a patent lawyer because I knew nothing and go, hey, I think I'm up to something. Like, can you check for me? And it's not difficult to check. It's like under a thousand bucks to be able to check and see is what I'm thinking. Is there anything around that area? Can you check for me? And can you let me know? And then you're just like, ah, I actually have something then. Yeah. Well, I I find that, really interesting from the perspective of what I see most of us needing. I I love the fact that you've got this unusual background for a tech founder, the legal background and all that kind of stuff. And you've just immediately highlighted how that unusual background has actually made you elevate yourself, has allowed you to elevate yourself. And I see this so many times. I work with women with the most curious backgrounds and they're like, oh, I can't do this because I'm like, yes, yes, you can actually. And actually it becomes your asset because mm-hmm. you think differently. So I love that. And then I also love the fact that you called out, you need belief, you need self-belief. I would say all of us, what we need to do is figure out how our uniqueness, how the thing that makes us different and feel awkward and like we shouldn't belong is actually an asset as mm-hmm. with you, that legal background is actually an asset that allows you to think differently. And then we need the self-belief. And when we have those two things together, anything is possible. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Um, uh, I always say, don't ever limit your next move by your skills, degrees, experiences, and who you were yesterday. Tomorrow is a blank mm. slate and you get to decide what that next move is. And, you know, uh, and even when people, you know, you ask them, what's your next five years going to look like? You know, I get that asked all the time. And when people ask me that question, I always say, I have no clue, but I, I know I'm going to blow my mind. <laughs> Right. You have to leave that space to Mm -hmm. the next version of yourself. And I think a lot of times as women, we are everybody else's something, mother, wife, um, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, grandmother, sister. But we don't realize that we are just by ourselves and we don't need any of those boxes of anybody's version of who we should be. Yes. And, um, you know, and I've been really blessed to, you know, uh, there was a version of me that was very boxed. And I'm so blessed that I stepped down from practicing law. You know, I did very well at that, um, but climbed the wrong mountain, right? So even though law serves me now, Tony, when I was practicing law every day, I remember I used to be driving to the office and I felt like I was throwing darts on my forehead. It was so painful. But you are correct. In the space that I'm in flow, the fact that I, you know, I was a lawyer and I knew business transactions and mergers and, you know, mergers and acquisitions and what makes businesses grow serves me so well today. People are surprised. You are correct. Um, Even when I was running my NGO, um, you know, the foundation, Growing Leaders Foundation, people were just so surprised that, you know, I, I already knew what the governance issues were. I knew what all the issues were because of that legal background, it came in to help me later on. 
Mm, I love that so much. Well, let's talk skill development, especially you mentioned your NGO there. Um, We all know that great leadership requires those so-called hard skills and also the soft skills. I prefer to call them real skills, not soft skills, because I feel like soft skills has such a bad um, terminology to it, like background to it. But you've told me that you think there is a third set of tools we need. Can you explain that for us? Absolutely. Absolutely. So if I were to look at every job taxonomy, and a taxonomy is really just kind of what makes up if you go and you look right now for a job, it will say, you know, the technical skills, and then it will say kind of nice to have, and you are correct, they call it soft skills, I call it human skills, you call it real skills, and then they would have that. And technically, it's a, it's always a combination of it's the same things. I want you to have communication, collaboration, uh, you know, depending on the job, emotional IQ, and you're just like, what does that mean for that job? So I would say that What has happened now, not only have we not defined what are the real skills, if I use your terminology for jobs, but now we have this whole layer of AI-enabled skills. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's a reality. So basically, every single job now, the taxonomies of jobs, you know, I can guarantee you within the next six months, 12 months, you're going to start seeing the shift of where every job is going to have some percentage of the hard skills the real skills, and the AI-enabled skills. And in some of Mm -hmm. those cases, it's going to be very large. In some of those cases, it's going to be very small. We're already seeing it. Like in the legal field, it's already very large. In marketing, it's already very large. Um, And it's actually doing better in areas that were human skills. So create, which is a typical human skill, creativity, you know, you just need to have to go to ChatGPT and ask it to create stuff for you. It creates all kinds of incredible stuff that you can't think up on your own, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I want you to think about that, right? And that's, it's a real paradigm shift that's happening because for, I don't know, since we were all born, it was hard skills and soft skills. And now all of a sudden we have this completely new layer that's going to change all of our lives for the better, I think. But, you know, we do need to be aware that, that it's there now and how we educate and train ourselves. Um, that should be a big part of it also. Yes. Yeah. I, I think you're really onto something there because it is about how we educate and train our scale ourselves. And a lot of people right now are getting very freaked out that certain sectors are going to disappear. Certain role functions are going to disappear. I've had this conversation with clients who are like, oh my God, is my job going to exist in five years? And my view is it's going to be the same thing as what happened with every single revolution we've been through, whether it's the industrial revolution or more recently with computers and people thought that an automation, I just, you know, all the strikes that we went through when I was a child, where we were bringing in automation in factories and lots of lots of employees went on strike. And I was like, well, actually, although I get that you feel threatened, what we actually need to be talking about is what is the role of the human in the future? We have never had a society where we don't find roles for humans. Some people argue that AI might be that future. I kind of doubt it, <laughs> to be honest. Mm. I think there's still going to be a place because if nothing else, AI depends on being trained by our knowledge. It doesn't, at the moment, we don't have the ability for AI to learn without a data set. And I know somebody who's working on a lot of the training platforms for a training AI, and they're like, there is not enough data out there. You have the entire internet. It's still not enough data for AI. So we actually need humans to do that initial kind of creation so that things like chat GPT can learn from it. And so would you say that there is a future for all of us and it's just about figuring out where we're going to sit in that future? Or do you think that some areas are just going to completely disappear? 
So I do think, you know, um, AI represents ChatGPT right now, normative thinking. You know, I call it the sheep thinking because it's the collective mass, right, of all the data out there. It looks at the collective mass. I do think that those of us who are outlier thinkers, those of us who are contrarian thinkers, those of us with obscure mm. knowledge are going to get highly elevated because ChatGPT does not pick up on those things, right? You know, when people, yeah. right? Um, so I do think those who develop these real skills in um, and they sharpen their sword with it will actually be highly relevant and will actually get elevated very quickly. However, Tony, there's a whole group of population um, out there in the world, you know, and sometimes it's cultural norms that does not allow those pop that th those individuals to know how to ask questions, know how to challenge. I do think that their jobs are going to be replaced very quickly by AI. And countries are going to have to face and will need to wonder because no longer was that manual labor. You know, they were in manual labor. They were already in just baseline labor, like call centers, for example. Mm -hmm. Or um, And what do we do with that whole level? Or, or, or many of the coders and engineers are going to get replaced. It's the ones that had critical thinking and creative thinking that are going to be relevant, right? So I want you to think about that. You, you are correct. In any revolution or evolution, Things that get displaced get replaced by other things, you know, so a job like a prompt engineer didn't exist to any of us seven months ago, mm -hmm. all right? You go to Udemy or Coursera or whatever and put in prompt engineering, the amount of courses that are out there now, you know, so I want you to think about that. But, you know, to be a good prompt engineer needs to be, you know how to be curious and you need to ask good questions. Yeah. You need to, right? Um, and that culturally for some countries... For generations, that's a no-no. You just listen to instructions. You just follow mm -hmm. instructions. Um, so I, I do think there are two sides of the coin, uh, Tony. But I do think that there are going to be large parts of the population that will be displaced. And not because of the lack of upskilling, but the lack of uh, the, the cultural norms of where we're heading. I don't know how quickly the shift will take place for them. Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting. Like, I think the shift in terms of technology is actually, for example, coders programming. I think, although it could happen really quickly, I still think we're a good 15, 20 years away from programmers being replaced by AI. I certainly, I mean, actually, I think it's a long way. Maybe I'm just, I will, I will have to like bookmark this in my calendar and come back here in 10, 15 uh, years time. <laughs> Here's what I'm going to tell you, Tony, on that. I let go last week for the first time someone on my tech team who was with me for a year and a half. And I also someone on my marketing team that was with me for a year and a half. I mean, and, and I made sure that, you know, they're going to go on. They learned. They were learning because they could not keep up and AI was doing about 90% of their job. And they did not have the right human skills for that 10%, which was the critical thinking. It was all the mm. skills. So I, I just want you to think about that. Yeah. Lovely human beings. Absolutely, I'm committed to who they become, you know, um, you know, and I made sure anyone who exits our company, they exit with dignity and grace, you know, put them through training for the last six months. And because it was just holding back the inability to use the AI tools. That's the issue, right? isn't it? It's the issue. It, and it had nothing to do with, uh, it had to do with their cultural norms. 
because they're virtual. Yeah. Many people are virtual and they're working from home and you don't know their home environments. And culturally, they might be sitting in, there are some countries in the world that the cultural norms are just that you 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 don't challenge and you don't. So you're asking mm-hmm. them to change decades of generations of their grandmothers and their mothers, how you want us to mm-hmm. challenge stuff and you want us to, it's just, it just wasn't in their DNA. It, it's just scripted. You do A to B today and I will get A to B done. And you tell them exactly how it needs to get done and they will get it done that way. Yes. And I actually, I think you're hitting something that's really, this is becoming a bigger, bigger issue it, just in my coaching conversations with the companies that I work with and the leaders I work with, where some of their work is outsourced to other parts of the world. I work predominantly with Europe and North America companies and clients, but quite often they're managing a team in another part of the world. Obviously, Europe and North America, even as women, there's some cultural conditioning with women that we're supposed to be still, you know, likable, seen and not heard but we're still more likely to speak up and challenge. And part of the work I do is encouraging my female leaders to speak up more and challenge more. But then they've got this community that they are leading in a different culture and that causes so much tension. And what I'm hearing from you is, it's actually, it's going to, one, it's going to get harder because what we need them to do is going to be a bigger stretch for them. But two, at some point, they are actually going to become irrelevant because they don't have the culture that, is needed for us to utilize AI effectively. Is that a fair assessment of what you're saying? Absolutely. And I will say to you, you know, I come from a North American background, you know, Canadian background, uh, educated in the US. And, you know, I'm in the Middle East right now. So, you know, and my teams are India, Pakistan, Philippines here. And I do have to tell you, my leadership is scary. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I say what I mean. I just want to get to the point. I I don't know how to do chit chat and small talk. And, you know, my CTO, who is brilliant, you know, Stanford AI, I was having a conversation with her yesterday. You know, we were, we're, car, we were carpooling back from, you know, this AI thing I just told you that we were at. And she said to me the funniest thing, which made me laugh, you know, because... Her name's Haley, you know, uh, from South Korea, as I said, but grew up in the U.S., Kansas, you know, MIT, Stanford, you name it, you know, top of the top of the mark. And she said to me, she goes, you are not what we all expect from a female founder or a female. uh, And I said, why? And she said, because we're all expecting that, you know, from a female to a female. I don't know. We expect like a certain type of chit chat behavior she's like you're just to the point get things done (laughs) (laughs) here's what we're learning and I said to her I said you know there's so few female founders that make it in tech it is not Mm. it is not easy um and and uh you have to you know and I come from an NGO background so I want you to remember that so my NGO background of nurturing and growing and having to be able to go that version of me will not survive in this version of the life that I have to show up in where everybody in my space and AI and people, I mean, look at the companies that are in the space I'm doing work. If I'm going to survive and thrive and, you know, I say to people, I'm a (laughs) sunicorn. They're like, what? I'm like, I'm a (laughs) sunicorn. I love that. that. We're all sunicorns, I've decided around here. (laughs) I'm a sunicorn. I'm like, I have to show up in a different way to be included at the table. And I said, it doesn't mean Mm -hmm. that I don't lose my, the beauty of what it means to be a woman in tech. Um, You know, I use that to my advantage. I said, but I just, there's certain things that just cannot be a part of my conversation right now, Mm -hmm. this version of myself. I love that. I love that so much. Okay. Um, I'm fully aware that we're like totally over time here, but I have one more question before we move on to the quick fire round for you. Like one more. 
What is your number one piece of advice to a woman in tech considering being a founder or pivoting her career like you've done? What would be the one thing that they need to know? I would say the word would be congruency. It is absolutely, and congruency means your video matches your audio. What you say and what you do, it's all aligned. And that's the thing that's going to hold you um, and keep you alive in what's probably going to be the most difficult journey you ever take in being a female in tech. If you don't come with the background, or even if you come with the background, because I have many tech founders who come with the background, but they don't have the business side or they don't have the sales side or they don't have the marketing side. You know, you are about to climb Everest, which is any startup founder. Right. You just happen to be a female on that. I would mm-hmm. say congruency, because if you're doing it and it is aligned to what you're who you are, what you want to leave the world as you're passing through your chances of making it is 200 percent more. Oh, yes. I love that. I love that so much. Actually, I love the, the use of the word congruency there. I talk about sparkle, but it's actually that alignment mm-hmm. with yourself. Make sure that what you're doing is going to be aligned because that allows you to sparkle inside. When we sparkle inside, amazing things happen. So. Let's talk quick fire round questions. You ready for this? Yes, I'm ready. Okay. What is the worst piece of advice you've ever been given? Follow your dreams. <laughs> Ooh, oh, this is controversial. Yeah. Okay. Tell us. Okay. This is supposed to be quick fire, but let's tell me more. Quick. <laughs> if you follow your dreams and you don't have a strength in that dream, it's a hobby. You cannot earn a living. <gasps> yes. <doing> <laughs> Anybody who tells you follow their dreams and they don't ask you, oh, by the way, are you self-aware of what your strengths are? What are you good at? What do you feel good doing? If they don't ask those other, don't take that advice ever. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love that. It's so subtle and yet so profound. What is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Best piece of advice um, I've been given and I'm very uh, aware of it is, you know, and it, it has to do with spirituality, but it also plays out in life. You know, I had a priest once say to me, when you're doing God's work, the devil has to work overtime. And I didn't understand what he meant at the time. I was really young when he told me that. And what it happens is when you are very aligned with who you are and how you show up in the world and the work you do, because you're doing it with a pure heart, there are going to be way more obstacles um, uh, than others because your journey is just so much bigger. Yeah. Yeah. That that is true. Like it's it's having that bigger journey. I love that so much. It's have that I think when you have that bigger ambition, as you say, it's harder for other people to like tear you down essentially at that point. Yeah. But they come out in spades, by the way. <laughs> they do. They do. I would agree with that one. What is what is the last book you read and would you recommend it? One of my favorite books, I wasn't the last one I read, is Principles by Ray Dalio. You know, I'm like his total fangirl. I did tell him that. I I met him last year in FII in Saudi. Um, And the reason I love that book is because, you know, he talks about principles in your life and in your work. And I love frameworks to just, you can consistently go back to and it can guide you whenever you lose your way or it becomes a little gray, you're like, ah, that's, I remember that's the thing, right? So mm-hmm. I would say to everyone, if you want, it's huge, but he does have a YouTube <laughs> uh, short, I think five or six minute version of the entire book. Oh, wow. Beautiful. So Principles by Ray Dalio, check it out. That, that's what, absolutely one of my favorites. I'm going to go check out that um, YouTube short in a minute. <laughs> that's what I'm doing in the next 
15 minutes today. Um, Can you share with us your favorite mindset tip to help ours as out as leaders? Absolutely. Um, So I would say the, 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 the best thing I do is I'm a very boundaried person. And the most boundaried people are the most compassionate people. So don't ever be afraid to shut the world out. Even sometimes that means your family. Shut your space out to be able to show up you for yourself 200 percent, so you can show up for others that way i think that is the best thing i have learned in the last you cannot be everything to everyone you then know nothing to no one i love that so much love it this has been amazing so tell us how can the audience connect with you find out more about what you do what gleek does absolutely um and and find yeah just meet you somewhere So there are there there are a couple of ways. Number one, of course, you can go you can go um, check me out on LinkedIn, Salian de la Casa. You can check out Gleek at Gleek G L E A C dot com, and we have a lot of um, free events with the world's leading experts every month. Sign up and come and learn with us and learn with me. I would love that. Oh, fabulous! I will be checking that out myself. <laughs> this has been an extraordinary conversation. Thank you so much. Is there any final thoughts you would like to leave our audience with today? No, I would just say, you know, I'm your biggest fan. So just go out there and, you know, do it. Do it. Everybody listening, just go and do it. Thank you to Sally Ann for today's interview. That was so much fun. As I said at the beginning, I wish we could just speak all day. But remember, ladies, I hope that this story is inspiring to you, but you get to create your own journey. Whatever that journey is, you get to define who you want to be. All of the stories I share with you on the show are just sources of inspiration, nothing else. So take what is useful and decide how you're going to use that to move forward. Remember, stay in your tech leadership game, follow your dreams, because the world really does need that uniqueness that you bring as a leading woman in tech.